Podcast that talks movies. I'm Abdul at Abdul Y Malik. I'm Laura at underscore Saturn Return. And I'm Evan at McDonald Tweets. And this week we have uh, a guest um, we're very, very excited about our favorite utopians uh, and coastal elites uh, from the so called nation state <laughs> of Canada. Um, the Wrong Boys from Seriously Wrong. Please introduce yourselves. Hey, uh, I'm Sean. Uh, my name on Twitter is Sean Utopia. Uh, I'm Aaron, and I don't really use my Twitter much, but we have Seriously Wrong at Seriously Wrong. That's probably the place to go. Wow, you've gotten out. How did you do it? <laughs> I I was never big in Twitter. More, more of a Facebook sucked into person. <laughs> mm. I'm making the transition from Facebook to Twitter right now, and it feels like the wrong way to go. <laughs> There are no right it's, answers. It's all bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, so, uh, seriously wrong for listeners who haven't but should listen to the show. Um, how would you describe your podcast? It's a we we do a utopian comedy podcast, uh, broadly like libertarian socialists, uh, but we identify as library socialists. Um, we're strongly influenced by like social ecology, identify as social ecologists, uh, and try to do like I don't know something that mixes storytelling and sort of uh cognitive weird sketch comedy that goes in and out of uh trying to be funny and also just like tackles big issues and hopefully makes politics feel less like this daunting crushing thing that's coming to destroy all of us and makes <laughs> participation in politics something that's fun uh not that it's not serious but that it's 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 bearable and and makes thinking seriously about the world, something that's not crushing. That's sort of like our hope uh, on, on what we try to do on the show and, and why we also really click with the Murray Bookchin stuff and the uh, utopian left stuff, uh, which is a big through line of our show. Something that uh, I was mentioning off pod, but I just wanted to make sure that I said on air uh, is that um, a while back, um, Abdul and I were talking about being involved in the climate movement and uh I was feeling really burnt out and really depressed from it because it was constantly this rhetoric of like, it's doomsday, we're doomed, there's there's like nothing to look forward to, it's 11 years and we're all fucked. And I was starting to feel extremely blackpilled from this and was feeling like, uh, I don't even know what I'm doing, why am I doing this? Like, uh, and, and I was just feeling really bad and Abdul was telling me, oh, you should listen to um, Seriously Wrong, listen to their uh, Ecotopia series. And I did and... You know, it's totally like renewed my commitment to uh, what's going on. And rather than focusing on like uh, everything that's going wrong right now, I'm finding ways to like build hope into my everyday life and to find solutions around me all the time. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that you guys do um, so well and that like what we really um, personally appreciate uh, Seriously Wrong for is like, you know, you can read, um, you know, uh, like my entry into utopianism was like Abdullah Ocalan, like Murray Bookchin, right? But it's another thing to actually have some outside document that's pushing um, 
uh, or actually actualizing a lot of those ideas into concrete ways you could make them a reality in your everyday life and how to like envision it. And on that end, that's where like seriously wrong really helps like turn those ideas into what I think is like concrete action. Um, right. Like, like the whole stuff about library socialism and how to actualize it is I think so important in like the small acts you do every day. Yeah, it's been a big thing, uh, especially with the library socialism uh, stuff, which we started like kind of building that idea recently. And like part of the main appeal of it is just that people know what libraries are like. And it's a very intuitive uh, like I've, I've found that when you say library socialism, people generally kind of get it. They might have questions, but they kind of get what you're getting at right away. And it's a way to really pump people's intuitions about what this society that we're talking about that we want to head towards would actually look like and what it would function like. And it helps people to imagine it not as something that's like really uh, ephemeral or like formless, but something they can kind of sink their teeth into and know what you're talking about and actually imagine what it would look like. So yeah, it's definitely something we consciously try to do. And I think there's a risk on the left sometimes that we're, we get focused on entirely on the oppositional, entirely on looking at how horrible things are. But we need sort of a pairing of both the oppositional and the reconstructive. And so we, 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 we tend to lean into the reconstructive and like try to bring forward sort of like not, not just why, why things are bad, but what it would look like to, to renew them into things that are good. It's something we like really try to bring into every episode. Um, one of the questions before we get into the movie today that I think is like important to ask is uh, we've been seeing Seriously Wrong pop up a lot in what you would call like the left podcast sphere. You know what I mean? Like um, I've seen uh, Seriously Wrong guest on a whole bunch of places, especially in like the last couple of months. And um, why do you think there's an appetite for what you're selling, what you're talking about, and what you're encouraging people to actualize now, right? Why are people so responsive to it? Especially places that might not be into what you would call like libertarian socialist, um, uh, libertarian socialism as an idea or as a dogma. Um, maybe, maybe because um, like our future has been stolen from us and we've grown up in a society where our only conception of the future is our impending doom um and as far as i know i think we're the only podcast that tries to leave that space frequent like by default so i think there might be a glimmer of like the, the just the that we really really try to imagine alternatives and like spend time in those alternatives that i yeah. hopefully it's something that's like encouraging to people and again yeah like makes people feel all right that would be my hope at least it, it might also i don't know there yeah could be but like well makes people feel like you were saying the um like you just said a lot of the feedback i see on twitter or like messages we get and stuff is people saying like this is a leftist podcast that doesn't make me feel depressed or like uh, like there's no, there's no hope or it doesn't make me feel like everything's lost. Uh, and I, you know, like, I, I think it's important to like have engaging with politics be something that doesn't leave you feeling drained and apathetic and hopeless. Um, not that you want to like, 
deny the horrible stuff going on in the world, but uh, like too much of that can not leave you feeling charged up and like wanting to challenge it, but instead feeling completely crushed by it. Uh, so uh, I, just based on yeah feedback we get, that is uh, what I think people find valuable in it a lot. And I, I think it works because we're really willing to look like idiots and be idiots. And <laughs> the it's, in the room. Pl- it's playful, right? Um, it's like, fun. It's very earnest. Yeah. So speaking of our future being stolen from us, uh, being blackpilled and trying to fight against that with uh, hope for renewal, we are digging into the Kino archives all the way back to the beautiful year 2006, uh, revisiting Alfonso Cuaron's masterpiece, Children of Men. Um, so we're going to recap the plot and hopefully not lose our minds <laughs> on the way. Um Plot recap's pretty simple. Uh, real cinephiles skip the plot recap. Yeah, real cinephiles skip the plot recap. Um, in the near future, there is a infertility event where all women become infertile. Uh, and society actually doesn't collapse. Society keeps on trucking. Um, uh, but as a result of that, certain countries do collapse. And there's a wave of uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric. Um, countries close their borders. Uh, the government starts handing out... Um, suicide pills and antidepressants, so uh, pharmacare for all. Um, <laughs> and somewhere brought into that, there's um, Theo, who used to be a radical but now works some like uh, no-name government job. Um, he's contacted by an ex about gang transit papers from his cousin, who's an art dealer. Um, he does it for someone. He has to. It's joint transit papers. He has to go with her. Finds out that she's pregnant. And then um, has to take the baby across to a, a refugee camp called Bexhill, where um, they're going to meet someone called the Human, some group called the Human Project that will take the baby to um, the Azores, where ideally they'll be able to like restart humanity by using whatever um, research they can get off of her and the baby. Um, of course, there's a lot more to it than we'll go into, but that's sort of the bare bones of the movie. Um, I guess, like, uh, a good place to start with in terms of, like, talking to uh, you guys especially is um, as, like, utopians, what about this film sort of – what about this dystopia do you find interesting? Like, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on was, like, this – almost a contradiction of doing this movie with you. Um, And so, like, how does it uh, speak to, like, your own uh, political views or your own, like, political viewpoint? Like for me, the dystopia slash utopia thing, like one thing we talk about with utopias a lot or like the practice of imagining a better future is that uh, if you want to change the world or if you want to do anything, you have to like kind of know where you're headed. You have to know what you want to point yourself at and like kind of define that. And then you have a direction and you can start taking steps from where you are in that direction towards the place you want to go. And dystopias kind of play the opposite role in your consciousness or in your imagination. It's like, okay, the the benefit of imagining a good future is so that you can see where you want to go to. And the benefit of imagining horrible futures is hopefully so that you can see paths towards uh, away from that and see paths in the opposite direction. Like how can we avoid this thing? Like what, what do we want to run away from rather than run towards? Yeah. And this, this movie is, uh, you know, it's, it's an incredible, like, dystopian movie it's like one of the best sort of like uh 
critical movies of sort of our current moment that I've ever seen that that feels really modern, even though it's, it's 13 years old. I rewatched it yesterday and I cried like five times. I was blown. <laughs> like, I remember li- liking it in 2006, but like re rewatching it now with everything that that I've like learned since then and stuff. It's just so, so blown away. And it's it's such a like despite all the the sort of like violence and horror and all this of the situation that they outline in the movie it's a it's a supremely hopeful movie and it's a movie that it's is rooted like really firmly in this sort of like love for humanity i think and this sort of like love for the positive potentialities that exist even within this dystopian scenario and so like just to clear up, no, utopians often use it's like a pejorative, and we sort of like try to turn that on its on its head and, and reverse it and, and embrace this idea of we want to build an ever more perfected society. Um, but like, I think a, a, a strong utopianism has to be rooted in a, in a strong critique of the way that things are. And I, so I think that Children of Men is also one of the is a very utopian movie in that sense, in that it it has the. It, it it has the the sort of like confident it's, it's sort of a miracle this movie got made it's so fucking brilliant it's like you, they don't make movies like this um and like and alfonso Cuarón said that it was inspired by slavoj zizek noam chomsky and he gave a list of other other um authors in a in an interview um that i read the so I, I think that the the dystopia utopia thing isn't isn't a contradiction. I think in order to be a good utopian, you have to have a solid grasp of dystopia, um, and I think that's what this movie does. This movie is uh, it leads with dystopia, but there's a sort of utopian spirit through it that that that, that comes out in different ways um, that that we could talk about. But the a, a great example is is uh, uh, Kane's character being killed by police while he repeatedly asked them to pull his finger. I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of, of filmmaking I've ever seen. And just such a, just a love letter to humanity and like humanity's resilience in the face of authoritarian oppression and, and destruction. It's just, it's a, it's just a beautiful, beautiful moment. And just so fucking good. Dad just jokes so good. till I die. <laughs> <laughs> And he asks again after they shoot him. They shoot him, and he's like, "No, pull my finger." He's, he's, just, he's committed to the bit. He's, he's um, yeah, and that's like one of the things about Alfonso Cuarón too, right? Is there's like an inherent humanity built into I think all of his movies, including Gravity, weirdly enough, um, about like the resilience of the human spirit, or even like a film like Roma, which is about sort of the humanity that exists between hierarchy and class lines, right? It's about a servant's relationship with, um, you know, her her family and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, like, uh, in terms of what we want to talk about with children of men, um, a good place to kick off would be actually building off your point about comedy and the human project. Um, you mentioned that the human project... So in the film, the human project, which is this idea about... Um, uh, this secretive government group that's or international group that's like trying to fix humanity um, is introduced as a joke, right? A guy is sitting at a table talking about eating a stork's leg, asking why all the babies are gone. And <clears throat> yeah, sort of um, there's this like humorous undercurrent throughout the movie. Uh, what do we think that says about the dystopia it lives in? What do we think it represents about the resilience of humanity? What do we think it like political statement it's making? 
Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating thing I, I notice on this this watch through is that the first time you hear about the human project is when Michael Caine's hippie character is smoking weed with Theo, and and he's like, all right, so. There's this group of people at the Human Project, right? And they're all talking about what the he's like going this hammy sort of like dad joke thing. And Theo interrupts and be like, "Oh, that Human Project's not real." But it's the first time that it's mentioned, and it's just I I feel like there's got to the, the movie's so intentional and so like it like clockwork in the way that it moves forward that I really want to read into that that like part of the read like as viewers our first introduction to the human project which is like the hope of humanity and like the crux of the movie's plot is introduced in the context of this goofy old hippie yeah. telling a silly joke about like oh i don't who who knows why they're in infertile but isn't this stork delicious um it's I, like, I think there's also a good like symbolism of their eating like he's eating the stork and like what's happened like what like we're humanity's doing this to themselves in a sense like it never tells you why all the women in this universe are unable to have children, but there's kind of this implication that humanity's done this to themselves in that joke. Yeah. And even uh, real, like tapping into comedy, I think speaks to uh, something that Mark Fisher's talked about. Um, and that like, there was this uh, like left activism during the sixties and seventies was mostly embodied by consciousness raising uh, and, you know, learning different ways to think about the world critically interrogating capitalism uh, and how we perceive things. Um, and now it's sort of drifted away. Uh, and, you know, with capitalist realism, there is no alternative. Uh, it's very difficult to imagine new political futures. Um, and I think that his character uh, brings a sort of levity that feels out of place in a kind of dystopian film, right? It's like, well, a character shouldn't be acting like that, right? There are more serious concerns or something like that. He feels uh, like transplanted from another film. Um, so I think that speaks to a, a really interesting and sad progression away from uh, bold new ways uh, to interpret our future. Because, uh, I mean, the world of Children of Men is stuck in this moment where um, there is no, there is no, there is nothing new, right? right? There are no new people who are going to be born. Um, art is collected for no reason, uh, and it feels like there is like it's you're caught in a permanent winter, right? Everything's gray. There's no life, so. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting how his character functions that way. I brought this uh, piece up on the last episode that we did, uh, but Bernice Johnson in Coalition Politics talks about us uh, talking to old activists who have been in the movement for 50 years and survived um, and trying to like uh, maintain some of their tactics and throwing out what, what doesn't work anymore. Um, and I think that... Um, People who are able to like live and resist for like a long term definitely um, can thrive in that uh, space where there's room for jokes and there's room for storytelling and connection in this way that's not always like serious and grinding despite the conditions around us. Um, and it's it's funny watching this movie years later because there's the DNA of this movie is everywhere, right? I, I don't know if you guys saw Avengers Endgame. But um, in the part of Avengers Endgame where, like, everyone's been snapped, um, there's just this... It looks like Children of Men, right? Like, society functions pretty much the same way. It captures a lot of the same visual identity and stuff like that. But, I mean, about this film's construction is that it, it lacks the... Avengers, um, in those scenes, lacks the vitality that permeates through this film, right? Be it, like, the way the camera moves and those, like, really elegant 
long takes, those moments of humor you were talking about. And one interesting thing about um, like the degradation that we see in Children of Men uh, is subtle, and Avengers Endgame also does this, um, but there's no garbage collection anymore. Uh, mm. Like Public services have essentially shut down. In Children of Men, uh, the state is mostly embodied by its military and police powers. Um, one thing I also appreciate about this movie is that there isn't kind of um, like a 1984 type leader. Like there's no chairman or something running Great Britain saying we must kick out all the immigrants. <laughs> it's a democratic society um, that's kind of going through its death throes uh, in the only way it knows how. Um, like Descent repeating fascism, yeah, yeah, like repeating atrocities that it's seen in the past. Um, there's one scene when uh, they're on the bus going into uh like the concentration camp and um there's uh, a prisoner in a cage um that's almost a one-to-one recreation of an abu Ghraib video with like a black bag over his head so um it's it's shockingly contemporary um yeah. for a film made in 2006 um and really the only like even migrant discourse um was you know focused entirely on like the southern border of the united states um, but I mean, people were talking about these issues, but, you know, hegemonically, you know, people weren't interested, more focused on the war on terror. So. Mm-hmm. The, um, it's interesting that you bring up Avengers cause I actually, I haven't seen Endgame. I watched some of the earlier, you know, uh, Disney hero movies and stuff, but I thought of Avengers when I was watching this movie, uh, and it's just an example of like, uh, like you're saying, Evan, about the, the contemporariness of this movie, uh, even though it's from 2006, I, I want to say I'm going to make a bold statement. Children of Men is the only contemporary movie I've ever seen. It's the <laughs> old, like all other movies are stuck in the past, and this movie right. is in the present, mm-hmm. and it's 13 years old, and it feels more present now. Like it feels as present now as it as it did when I first saw it, and it just has all this this sort of like this, there's just this feeling of like it's speaking about our current moment so so profoundly in a way that you don't see and like i can't think of any other movie that makes me feel like it's embodying the present better and i thought of avengers in contrast of like avengers is a really fancy movie from the 1990s right um like it's just there's there's nothing modern about it in the sense that like and this movie is so profoundly modern um and like and obviously like the immigration and and migrant discourse has become a lot more mainstream since 2006 when this was released so it feels like also almost prophetic in a way but the reality is the stuff was always Always going going on there was always people dying at the border there was always people drowning uh, trying to get to europe Uh, and it's just it's just only gotten more extreme since then and that's what makes the movie feel so profoundly present is it took what was going on at the time and then just made it more so and so like every the every frame of the movie registers as just like accurate and like profoundly commenting on the current state of things which is incredible for a movie that's almost 15 years old um and i i actually like i remember liking it when i saw it when it first came out i'd be like 16 um but and i expected this to be a movie that had degraded like where you see a movie when you're a teenager and you love it and then you watch it in your 20s and you're like oh it's actually really transphobic that's weird um (laughs) but (laughs) 
but it was the exact opposite of like in one of the opening sequences where like Theo's on the bus and you see the detention camps and stuff like that. And just like full disclosure, I was super, super hungover watching this movie, <laughs> but I just started crying. I couldn't like just the visuals was yeah. and the disconnect between Theo and his sort of like privileged position as like just going to work past all this stuff and it had become normal to him. Um it, it really just profoundly struck me, and the the also on, on that note, I feel like the overall treatment of the of privilege in the movie is really fascinating and really nuanced, um, and it's it's built from. There was a quote from I read from Alfonso Cuarón talking about why they threw out the original script. It was based on some old book, and he didn't even read the script. He he said <laughs> the reason he threw out the script is because he didn't want to make a movie about the middle class of a fascist state. Yeah, <laughs> and he didn't even read uh, the original book, wow. Children of Men. Uh, he read a, a one-page synopsis of the book and said, wow, that's a great idea, and threw out everything except for the central problem of global infertility and kind of mankind facing, you know, no future, yeah. uh, which uh, is a baller move, and you got to respect it. <laughs> I was watching this. Uh, I was watching it with a friend of mine who had never seen it before, and uh, what they were saying was that uh, kind of that 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 particular scene where you're talking about the um, uh, Theo getting off the bus and walking past the cages of migrants. Um, my friend was saying if they made that movie like right now, like came out today, it would be. Uh, kind of maybe um, people would say it was like too on the nose and too didactic. You know what I mean? Like it would be a little bit like uh, too much of like a teaching moment. Yeah, I think of that, that hyper normalization, you know? Yeah. Um, Zizek has uh, some interesting things to say about Children of Men. I think it's on the Blu-ray <laughs> on the special features. But um, he was talking about how uh, Children of Men succeeds in portraying dystopia in ways that many other dystopic films don't. Um, and a lot of it has to do with its point of view. Yeah. So obviously there's a great amount of interplay between uh, the foreground and the background in this movie. Um, and like he says that if you're staring right at like an oppressive state, it's not very like compelling. I don't think you'd learn much. But when it's on the periphery um, and like it's it's really interesting because the camera often leaves um, our central character and goes to focus on things that he's not seeing, right? Like the purging of like that apartment building and everything's falling out the windows. Um, you know, a woman pleading with a guard who doesn't speak her own language. Um, and he's just walking past it. Um, it gives a humanity to, uh, kind of all of the players of this film, uh, not just the, the central character. So I think you get a better feel for just like what life is like, uh, in this world that you wouldn't um, in like a Hunger Games type movie. Mm. It's also about a dystopia, but is so centrally focused with like the lore of like what happened to this world, what the government looks like um, that this movie uh, doesn't deal with. Um, on the topic of Zizek, you know, without uh, public services and trash collection, that trash can is looking mighty tasty <laughs> right now. <laughs> Um, it's, it's funny. Someone, uh, brought up, uh, the idea that there wasn't like a Trump figure in this, um, film. I did read like a synopsis of the book, um, last night and the book is really interesting because, uh, there's like one last election held in Britain. And then the guy who gets elected, uh, in like a, basically a, a vote where no one turns out actually just makes himself warden of Britain because yep. no one cares about politics anymore. Like everyone's just so alienated that they're like, okay, fine. You can be president for life. Right. Um, which I think is, is really interesting. I'm happy they didn't include it in the movie, but as a sort of idea in the book that is like very present, I think that's 
I mean, it speaks to a lot of like our current political situation is alienation that gets, um, you know, sort of fascists or authoritarian leaders elected, right? Yeah, and uh, I'm just reading a bit from uh, the K-Punk article that Mark Fisher, uh, rest in power, wrote about Children of Men. Uh, this entry is called Coffee Bars and Internment Camps. Uh, and one of the reasons um, that I think connecting to your point, Abdul, makes the film strong um, is that the film is dominated by a sense that the damage has already been done. The catastrophe is neither waiting down the road, nor has it already happened. Rather, it is being lived through. There is no punctual moment of disaster. The world doesn't end with a bang. It winks out, unravels, gradually falls apart. Um, so there's no one to blame, really, um, for this catastrophe. Um, it's just normal, right? People are just trying to figure out a new way to live, um, which reminds me of that, uh, um, you know, beautiful Mark Fisher quote, we must invent the future. Uh, the characters in this movie literally face the challenge of what happens next, right? And I mean, we all face that challenge, but how do we invent a future uh, in the face of completely oppressive circumstances? I don't know if uh, you guys have anything to sort of pick up on after that, uh, especially related to the human project. Well, so one of the fascinating things about sort of the human project and like even the choice in like naming that and what it sort of plays as a narrative device in the movie, especially in contrast to the fishes, like the revolutionary group, um, is that there's this I, it's there's this sort of like um, and uh, Alfonso said that the, 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 the movie was inspired a lot by uh, following 9-11 was when he started working on the movie because he realized that there was this sort of like transitionary moment happening and he was trying to like see where the, the, the world was headed. Um, and there's multiple references to like um, inside job type stuff over the course of the movie. Not like I'm not saying that he's a truther, but that there's, <laughs> like early on in the movie, uh, one of the children of men says like, <laughs> What's that? I said Bush did children of men. Dumb joke. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Someone someone says, oh, every time a politician gets in trouble, a bomb goes off. And then later when you meet with the fishes, he's like, you you bombed that coffee shop. And they're like, we didn't do that. The government did that. And then like later the fishes did their own inside job to kill their own leader because she was deviating from the one true revolutionary path. Um, and there's like and that's one of the things I really, really appreciate with, about this movie now having been involved in leftist politics like for a, quite a long time compared to when I first saw the movie i was not really a political person that much um is like that there there is this sort of like righteous revolutionary faction that has the correct ethical analysis of society they're 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 correctly standing up for migrants against this authoritarian government but in their own sort of like weird way they've become twisted by their own certainty and there, there ends up being a conflict between they're sort of like revolutionary ideology and uh, like humanity and that there's like this tension between that they see um they see this baby they they see this 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 pregnant woman as a means to an end for their sort of like ideology and there's this like tension between like and they the whereas like the baby sort of represents this like pureness like this humanity sort of rebirth sort of like the hope for the future and they're willing to like risk that or they don't even think they're willing to risk that, but they are because they're they're so convinced that they're even willing to like kill their one of their own leaders because uh, they think that she has the wrong like she's sort of strayed from the party line, which is interesting. The, the, the film's made by like Alfonso Cuarón identifies as a Marxist, um, so there's like this this. Um, 
that that sort of dynamic in the movie was something I just found really like fascinating and like just and every I mean every frame of the movie every line of dialogue in the movie has this really something you can like chew on and think about um but that that dynamic between the sort of like revolutionary fishes versus the human project um as it sort of unfolds in the movie i think it's just really uh brilliant thoughtful filmmaking that that was really stimulating and especially as it relates to um you know where alfonso Cuaron is from right mexico uh, one of the things that, you know, Subcomandante Marcos has said about the Zapatista project is that its enduring power is based in people know when to step aside, right? Like Marcos said that he was a leader for wartime, not for peacetime, right? Not for uh, societal building, right? And even like in projects that I um, follow and feel like care very deeply about, like the Rojava project, um, like its real test will be, you know, not when... Uh, ideally the Turks um, fuck off and let them have, <laughs> you know, a nation state, but it's, it's going to be what everything that comes afterwards, right? Like it will, the preservation of democracy be there because, you know, sort of the right people are left to task of creating it rather than the people who are there sort of helping them fight the fight. But yeah, I mean, one of the other things you brought up, um, which I think would be interesting to get into is this idea of closing borders and infertility, um, which I, is a metaphor I'd never thought of before while watching the movie, but I was just wondering if you don't mind expanding a bit on that. Yeah, uh, so uh, I was just thinking in in, in terms of the uh, the, in, the the infertility of like the the individuals within the the children of men sort of universe that's uh, built and extrapolated on, um, and how that connects with the. Um, connects with like the closed border anti-immigrant stuff going on in the movie. Whereas like the, the closed border uh, is like, there's this lack of renewal that comes, there's like a lack of renewal in the population that comes from saying like, uh, again, like this is all the people we have, like we're not going to take on any more people. And there's just, it, it struck me for the first time rewatching the movie this week of just like how there's that sort of parallel between um the refusal of of new people from elsewhere and the lack of ability to generate new people using like reproductive methods it's like the the it, there's this, this common sort of stagnation between the two things and that like the border stuff seems seems like um in the same way it sort of implied that somehow this infertility thing was brought on by ourselves like somehow this infertility thing was brought on by the choices that 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 uh people made that the 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 strong anti-border stuff is like this uh, or the strong anti uh open border stuff the strong anti free movement stuff is like a rejection of ourselves like closed borders i just uh, that's what I felt if the movie had anything to say about borders, it was that by closing borders, we're closing ourselves off from ourselves. We're, we're like stifling our own humanity and we're denying our own capacity to reproduce and grow and move forward. That's that's I felt like there was a really potent sort of like through line and sort of between the crack in the cracks of the movie. Right. There's a lot of stuff going on and there's a lot of room for interpretation in the movie, which is one of the things I really like about it, too. But like it, it just struck me as like. Yeah, the the closed border was a, deni a denial of humanity that that we were we were uh, closing ourselves off to renewal in the same way that by whatever disaster happened in the movie that led to the infertility we were closed off from renewal in that way, and then we also closed ourselves off to renewal in a in a political sense. 
one thing that uh, has me thinking, it's a shot very early on in the movie when you see the televisions that say, like, the world has collapsed, but Great Britain soldiers on. What does the rest of the world collapsing look like to Great Britain? Because, like, I don't know what, like, you know, we as, like, obviously we don't see the rest of the world um, in this film, but, like, what does that mean? Is there some kind of, like, new political organization that they disagree with? Um, because I think, like, the the audience expectation is just, like, oh, everyone's eating each other, right? Like, it's terrifying. Um, but there's also this, like, um, like Islamic insurgency group uh, in the movie. We're not sure, you know, what exactly they're fighting for, why they started. They are merely, like, the resistance to the state. So is it, like, have they gained power in the rest of the world? It doesn't sound apocalyptic to me, right? Like, right. like how are the other countries of the world dealing with this? And how, is that a way that Britain is justifying its horrible treatment uh, of people on its own island? So... I thought that was intriguing. Um, and, it, oh, sorry. Oh, I, just uh, quickly, yep. um, one thing that Fisher also connects this to um, is, like, the closed border metaphor, I think, ties really well into thinking about a future that only holds uh, reiteration and repermutation. So um, with no new ideas, with no new people, like, with preventing the world from coming uh, to Great Britain, um, all they can do is perhaps subconsciously just recreate everything they've seen before. So obviously the Nazis are a large touch point um, for this new Great Britain, um, like the concentration camps and all of the imagery of that. The atrocities of the United States during the war on terror uh, are also very evident. So um, I think the end of the film, um, obviously there's a lot of hope um, built into that. Um, but yeah, what do you, what do you all think? Um, I think it's it's interesting with the closed uh, borders thing um, because I'm sure there is uh, some sort of collapse outside, right? But we only see it as far as it extends to Europe um, because those are where the people, immigrants would be uh, fleeing in from, for example. Um, but, you know, for all we know, um, a world outside, say, in uh, Asia or in North America, you know, the collapse of society might just be the collapse of statehood as we know it right like it's it's so wrapped up in our conception of what government or society or state looks like as something normal rather than a generative project and it's very within the scope of you know authoritarian propaganda to tell us that anything that goes outside that normal is bad um and i think that's one of the ways the film conveys information is you know there's a lot of points where people are like oh it's a shame about what happened in barcelona were your parents there in new york when it happened right these things are never really explained um but we also don't see uh you know societies on the other end of that smaller towns more rural rural communities right places that are actually in a lot of ways more equipped to deal with um, sort of uh, systemic collapse of society as we know it, and like what might be emergent out of that in the scope of like, well, we're doomed, so let's make a better world for ourselves while we have it and stuff like that, right? I mean, borders in general, um, not good. <laughs> I think we can all agree. Um, and you mentioned the concentration camp at the end, Evan. It feels a lot like, you know, descriptions of like the Warsaw Ghetto and stuff like that, right? That were sort of in a, in a liminal space between a, between being a concentration camp or being a um, like sort of semi-functioning society and stuff like that. I think that uh, something in the concentration camp uh, and kind of the ghetto that the migrants were in um, that was really strong in this movie as well was its depiction of like 
the horrors of uh, a battle that would be ensuing like that. Like there was nothing cool or heroic. We just got out of a recording about uh, Angel Has Fallen, a boomer fantasy about, you know, <laughs> war and uh, and um, the Secret Service doing cool shit with awesome guns. And there was nothing like that in, in this. And um, as uh, they're transporting the baby out and the baby is crying and all the soldiers are kind of like falling to their knees and doing the sign of the cross because of this like uh, glimpse into a future that could be um, and the, the fighting stops for a moment but then as soon as they're gone it's like boom right back into it right and there's nothing like heroic or good about it it's just like shown for the horror that it is yeah the parts of the movie that last like 15 minutes or so of the movie all the heavy like action stuff or like war stuff just was really gripping for me which is unusual for me like I usually don't like big long extended action sequences I actually end up finding them boring and I just want to know how it all shakes out at the end and like explosions and blah blah but like this it doesn't feel like that same uh, like like action porn stuff, I guess, where it's like trying to look so cool and glamorous. Yeah. It's like it it feels real and it's like punching you in the gut over and over again. And it's not like giving you the the like you you don't see a lot of this stuff coming. It's just like there's an explosion or like someone runs in and shoots and like this character that you actually cared about all of a sudden is dead or like when the woman with the dreads i forget her character's name gets like taken off the bus and you see them putting the hood over her head and she's been a part of this thing for the whole time and it's like yeah like the movie does a really great job of building tension and like people keep dropping like flies around key and uh this mission to get her to the human project and the boat and like all that action stuff was really good and then the moment you mentioned when like the baby starts crying in the building and like everyone all the soldiers like it's just like oh hold your fire like everyone stops and they're just like aghast they're like like surprised and like in awe and they just like just looking at this baby that has like there's been no babies for like 20 years and everyone's just like uh, stopped in their tracks and stopped in their roles and they're just like humans again for a moment it's like this real humanity shining through and it's it's like Sean mentioned crying a bunch during the movie, but that was the only I part I cried. I like cried <laughs> for like that whole sequence. When as soon as the baby started crying, up until as you mentioned, they get far enough away from the action, and then there's like uh, someone shoots off a, a like a grenade launcher or something, I think, and like it just all starts going again. But it was like, yeah, it really like emotionally resonant. Which Alfonso Cuarón's great at, like all his movies, including the only good Harry Potter movie. <laughs> uh, I forgot he made that one, but it's very good. <laughs> Which one's that? Uh, First movie Prisoner I of ever saw by him, and it's what made me a fan of him, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, and, oh. the 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 um, the the I'm blanking on her name for some reason. Uh, the fish leader who's killed in the car, Julian. Uh, Julian, yeah, she. She um, one of the points of tension between her and her comrades who staged uh, execution for her because she was uh, bet- betraying the party line with this 
uh, human project stuff instead of fighting for the revolution like they wanted. One of the th- points of tension between them that, that's mentioned is they say that sh- like that she thought um, uh, I can't remember exactly how they word it, but that, that she thought basically that the 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 child could stop the fighting like that the that the the need for the the need for revolution could be sort of like uh compromised by the existence of this pregnancy um and i thought of that when i can't remember exactly how it was worded i didn't write it down but I remember thinking of this during the scene when the baby's coming down the stairs and, you know, you realize that the, the it's not just music playing. It's actually a woman who started singing when she saw a baby and it's like reaching to touch the baby's foot. And then all the soldiers are like uh, doing their like Hail Marys and stuff because it's so um, in that that she was partially right. That she was right in the sense that seeing the baby did stop the fighting temporarily, like mm-hmm. long enough for them to get out of the building because people were so... Uh, like shocked and in awe of, of this like beautiful thing that they hadn't seen for for twenty years um, that that uh, was normal to them when they were when they were young or when they were younger um, and that that she was right that like the the awe of this uh, chance at humanity's survival stopped the fighting but she was wrong that it would stop the fighting altogether because as soon as everyone's guard was down someone shoots a rocket to try to get get upper ground on the police and then they all start shooting again yeah it's it's so fascinating in that um the movie is bookended with the death of baby diego right like who used to be this uh like holder of a lot of hope for people uh like the youngest person on earth is stabbed to death outside of a bar yeah i think um and yeah it's it's both an important reminder that, like, I think people can be, you know, like, reaching people on an emotional human level is always a great way to change politics. But also there needs to be a structural critique and real structural change uh, at the baseline of a of a re- revolutionary movement. Um, because, like, I like it is a very hopeful scene, but I just thought of, like, what if everyone gathered around to watch a watch this or politics video? <laughs> it's like, wow, AOC really did own those guys. Then the grenade launcher goes off and you're back to fighting. <laughs> um, and I think that's a good place to segue into the idea of faith in this movie, right? Which is, um, Evan, I know you, you mentioned this off pod and I'll let you speak to it, right? But like the film is a faith document. I think every character... One of the reasons it's so compelling is that every character is driven by some sort of faith, right? Some sort of spirituality. It's not just um, a clearly moral project. It's that in the absence of anything else to latch on to, like a functioning society or a a coherent political ideal, um, people are driven by their religion, right? But you said that you uh, read something that made hell happen. Yeah. So uh, I was going down a Mark Fisher and uh, Children of Men hole uh, last night, which is always a good hole to go into. (laughs) You feel really good after it. Um, But uh, it took me to a Francis Fukuyama video where he's talking about why Children of Men is one of his favorite movies of all time. Mm. Uh, Francis Fukuyama, famously wrong about almost everything. (laughs) Uh, But you got to respect the grift um so he was talking about children history did not in fact end (laughs) (laughs) yeah this movie is not the end of history either francis um so i i was really intrigued because you know i want to see something from a little bit of outside of my sphere to see if you know i haven't contemplated something but he's like oh you know this is like a it's a very deeply christian film because it's like a you know jesus mary and joseph the movie almost ends with the second coming right and it's like okay like 
that's interesting. But like, what else, Francis? Like, to what end, right? But he almost never uh, critiques like that. This is a deeply like late capitalist film. Like, it is a late capitalist disaster that everyone's finding themselves in. Um, like, he finds it intriguing, uh, like in the infertility level, and that like you know it's this arc of redemption um, for Clive Owen's character, and all of that is interesting. But it reminds me of like the one of the limits of critique is the critic. <laughs> um, so I just, just broadening uh, the possible questions that we can ask of film um, broadening our readings of film is very important. And like, obviously like faith charges a lot of action in this movie. Um, so does disillusionment. Uh, and I think those are all very interesting, but like asking like the critical questions of like faith in what, like what world are these people trying to bring uh, into being like why do they have this faith right what keeps them going or why specifically are conditions so bad that people need to be motivated almost by faith alone um there's a, a terrific history of christian radicalism and uh especially in you know what you would call like the arab world or the muslim world right of like socialism as dictated by uh, muslim principles and stuff like that um or liberation theologists liberate, in south yeah. america liberation theology um you know korean anarchism heavily influenced by like christianity i know there's like a big settler colonial question around um sort of a lot of that stuff but i think there is a tendency from the left to um almost be skeptical for the sake of being skeptical a lot of the leftists or you know social democrats i know who um embody that philosophy are some of the people you never want to organize with you know what i mean or who make it particularly difficult to um work with in any sort of like broad organizing principle um and i think it's like it's it's so reductive right like there are a lot of valid criticisms to be had about the hierarchies of faith but also there's so much to be said about the way um it as a guiding set of moral principles for the people who believe them are a path forward into sort of utopian ideology, right? Or like some sort of liberated worldview where we're free of capitalism and wage um, slavery. And I think this film touches on that like so well, because I don't think um, I forget her name as well. The woman in dreads who's like walking with them, right? Who's like praying all the way till the end, which is just a horrifically sad scene. Um, you know, I don't think she has any sort of, like, political motivation as she goes through in terms of, like, oh, I, I want a Marxist project to happen yeah. out of this, right? But she's driven by that faith, and that, to me, is, like, such a crucial element to, like, understanding and appreciating the movie is knowing that not everyone functions on dogma. Yeah, one interesting thought I just had while listening to you is, like, I don't know if I missed it, but I don't think Theo expresses a lot of faith in anything. Oh, at, uh, at one point they say sort of explicitly that he – one of the things the movie does that's interesting is that sometimes through dialogue they say really explicitly stuff that maybe in other movies they would show, uh, like, through these sort of – at one point I think um, – uh, Kane's character says explicitly he lost his faith when the baby was killed by the flu and that like right. the, the baby was the representative of his, his faith and his relationship and the world. And that when the flu, uh, when the, the flu killed his son, it's like when he became the sort of disenfranchised alcoholic existentialist white male protagonist. And before that he was, um, Right. And like in the early parts of the movie, he's like very resistant to doing anything like he he 
he he goes along with helping them out um but he's he doesn't seem all in up until the point when um he kind of realizes that there there's been uh uh that the revolutionary group actually killed Julian and that there was a, a, a like unfair play going on there. But like the, the faith that seems to like have motivated him in that moment to like participate is the faith that Julian had in him and that she told key that if anything happened to her, that she should stay with Theo and that Theo would get her to the boat. And he's just kind of like, I will like, I guess, but then like he, he does. Um, And like, it's interesting you mentioned he lost his faith with the baby like i forgot that line or missed that line but then like he finds his faith again in this this new baby this um uh hope for humanity there it's just in interest like his faith isn't quite religious but there is still a faith there and a non-dogmatic kind of faith like unrelated to specific ideology or anything um, and also with, with Theo's journey starting as a like a hand solo type, I'll do it for the money sort of thing, or or maybe I'm doing it for the love. I don't, but the money definitely. And like that sort of, I feel like the the movie has this really great um, sort of like complex relationship with its protagonist, where it starts off sort of implying of him as this very sort of like normal like disenfranchised cool protagonist and starts dripping in these reasons to think that maybe he's not such a good guy like his indifference to all this suffering and he's in this like public service position and stuff um but then also gives him this this chance at redemption through his both both his love of julian but also sort of his love of um like humanity as embodied by this baby and like i just i uh, keeping track of that over the course of the movie i was really fascinated with the way that they treated this protagonist which i think in a sort of regular action movie it, he would stay alcoholic the whole time and be super cool and like i don't even care about any of this and like <laughs> I, you know in the last scene would be him like putting out a cigarette and being like it was just for the money and you're like <laughs> I think it wasn't just for the money, but he said it was, and that's really cool. Uh, <laughs> May the force be with you, kid. Yeah. The last line of the movie would have been, hey, baby. And the baby looks back to him. He's like, happy trails. <laughs> he walks away. <laughs> One thing that I also thought was really beautiful in this movie, this is kind of a quick aside, but uh, during the scene where uh, Michael Caine is telling Key and uh, the dreadlock woman about uh, the loss of Theo's baby, they're playing Mahler's uh, Kindertotenlieder, which is the song on the death of children, uh, which was a nice Mahler deep cut there for my romantic music heads. And I think... <laughs> That's a great place to sort of jump into art in this film, right? Um, so I, I know the Mark Fisher thing is that art is something to be collected but not seen. It sort of operates on the periphery of the world. Like art has been stripped of all meaning, right? Like they have dinner at Battersea Power Station with fucking Guernica uh, on the wall behind them, right? And a like pig this floating in the distance. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I love, this is one of the best directorial choices in the movie, is the music choices that go along with everything. Like, you, even while you're watching um, art being stripped of all of its meaning, sort of diegetically, outside um, what's happening in the film. Like, when he drives up to meet his cousin, like, in the court of the Crimson King is playing, and it's one of the best fucking musical cues I've ever seen in a movie, right? Um, and I think it's just so interesting to think about, like, art 
at the end of civilization, be that utopia or dystopia, right? Because, like, there's this inherent assumption that art is built out of conflict and out of discovering ourselves and that, like, you know, full uh, luxury communism or uh, absolute dystopic destruction will uh, will remove our ability to create good art. Well, I think that that uh, the art born out of suffering is kind of uh, like a romantic era uh, ideal. Like that's not really how throughout most of time people viewed like art or art artisans is like a trade and and a skilled thing to do. Um, but this like tortured genius idea is kind of like a Victorian hangover. I think. I think uh, a lot of the representations of art in this movie are deeply fascinating. Um, in that, uh, and Fisher talks about this. I'm just stealing all of his all of his ideas. Um, is that like we see the differentiation between how the wealthy and everyone else entertains themselves? Um, so Clive Owen's friend uh, has amassed some of the greatest works of art, uh, you know, in recent memory, and does nothing with them. Uh, yeah, like Pink Floyd's pig is hanging outside of uh, the window. Uh, it's very funny. Um, Guernica is stripped of any importance. And uh, there's this line where his friend is saying like, oh, they couldn't have saved La Pieta, uh, which is a sculpture of Mary holding Jesus uh, after he was taken off of the cross. Um, And I think there's a really interesting correlation between how we see like works of art recreated in the lives of everyday people. Uh, So we see this like almost like symbolic beauty represented in everyday struggle. Um, So when Key reveals her belly uh it's the birth of venus right she's recreating that um and then there's a mother holding her dead son in the pose of la pieta which um curan talks about how he was inspired by this photograph taken um i think um in sarajevo or the balkans um and it's like the pieta of sarajevo or something it's a mother and her dying son is in bed and it's a very similar (laughs) pose so um just yeah, I think that art uh, is deeply tied to culture. Kind of without it, it's dead. Um, and Fisher has this great quote uh, at the end of uh, that article in K-Punk where a culture of commemoration is a cemetery. Uh, and I think that's deeply um, like a part of fascist ideology where um, the glorious past is something that must be venerated at all costs um, in order to remember who this pure political body is, right? The borders are shut. Uh, and we've collected all the best things uh, hidden away in a little tower, right? Um, even though, like, art can't be taken away from people, which I think is a kind of beautiful point that this film makes. Like, people in their own lives create these things of beauty um, that can't just be shuttled away by elites. I know. Do you guys have anything to pick up on there? Well, just quick. I also liked how Michael Caine's character was a. Uh political artists like they had little political cartoons up around in his place like that just goes to what you were saying like people creating their own little art despite the society falling away yeah and his his cousin's like sterile weird elitist art collection thing it was just a really it's a fascinating sequence uh like really really captivating and also sort of like part of it is that it like it really speaks to me this like desire to retain these like great like if i was in this position of of wealth in this dystopian society like maybe i'd be the person trying to collect all of these like pieces of important art and put them in one place even though um it's 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 all 
ultimately going to be for nothing. Um, and another interesting part about that is his sort of like his feral Zoomer son who's like... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just playing Fortnite, basically. Yeah. yeah, he's just sitting at the table playing Fortnite and he's like, son, hey, pay attention. Pay. And he's just like using this weird like hand technology device. And this is, I was thinking 2006, uh, it was like 2007 when everyone got iPhones. Yeah. So like it, it, this was like right before the sort of... And if you did the exact same sequence with his son playing on a phone and him being like trying to get his attention it would have seen seemed so corny and so like boomer yeah sort of like kids these days <laughs> kind of thing days, yep. but because he's got this sorry what was that oh no i was just agreeing with you okay uh because because he's got this like weird hand device thing it just it registers as so much more like yeah so much more like potent about that sort of generational divide around technology and like um it, it becomes something bigger than just again like if the movie was made today the kids in cages would seem a little too on the nose the 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 smartphone kid would seem a little too on the nose but because it was just more anticipated this direction by taking the present at the time in 2005 or whenever they're shooting this movie and elaborating on it it just, it's so timeless and brilliant and evocative and like i can i could speak all day about what an incredible movie this is it's a beautiful poignant movie that has profound things to say about our notions of self our notions of family our notions of society and hope uh like every frame of this movie blew me away i just fucking love it it's so so fucking good um and yeah and also uh, uh, on michael kane's political art it's an awesome piece of like history about him and then also that his wife was a photojournalist that was tortured and now she's she's sort of like a, a, a like well society is sort of a shell of itself like she's this very literal shell of herself that he he uh, spends his time with in this very like sentimental way even though she's 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 vacant and like that that, that relationship is one of the things in the movie that I just feel like is one of the places where the movie has so much heart and it's so like poignant and, and painful and at the same time, like funny and, and inspiring and hopeful. Mm -hmm. Um, I, one thing that I really wanted to uh, get into was the one moment in this movie where like, I felt a little bit itchy um, watching it. And uh, I would really like to hear uh, your thoughts about it, uh, which was the scene um, where he shows that she is pregnant in the uh, barn uh, to Theo. And she like strips naked to the waist and she's like surrounded by cows after um, having this, uh, this little monologue about how they like cut some of the cows like breasts off or, or udders off so that they fit the machines. And I kind of like, I found it hard to kind of articulate why I felt a little bit uncomfortable around that. But I think that, um, the the shot itself is aesthetically beautiful like Evan was saying it's this kind of birth of Venus um, type moment but I felt a little bit uncomfortable with the livestock imagery and discussion uh, around it I don't know if you wanted to um, speak on that or, or what you think uh, one thing that pops to mind for me is just that like 
she's in this place with this group of revolutionaries who like want to use her baby for their political ends. And it like, it kind of seems like they're not seeing her as a full person. They're Mm -hmm. seeing her again as a means to an end, like kind of like as livestock, like, or as like fodder for their political purposes anyway. And like the only people who see her as fully human are like Julian and Theo and, dreadlock woman as we've <laughs> come to call her <laughs> but like uh, <laughs> there's the it, like that scene also when i first saw it like you, you, it's hard to articulate like what exactly is being implied there but it is like it, it's like animalistic in some way and that she's getting half naked like with these animals and like yeah it it it's like i think it's intentionally kind of like unnerving and discomforting yeah. but the the livestock thing like is just what popped to mind for me like they're using those cows and they want to use her as well and this is such um a line that's present throughout a fascist or authoritarian ideology as well as like neo um like eco-fascism and especially like incel uh fascist subcultures right is the idea that women are only there for breeding right and they use that exact sort of terminology uh which is like horrifying from start to finish and stuff like that um and that uh is like very representative of what that scene is about right like in terms of how they view her um and even even the fishes are like, oh, if we go to the authorities and say we have this, they'll, uh, uh, you know, give the baby to some other rich couple and hide key away and say that these are the people who did it, right? And they're saying, no, it's it's the immigrants who are capable of breeding, <laughs> um, right. not not the rich people, right? Like their their ideological tangent is not like it's it's dissimilar but it speaks to the same end game and whereas like Theo and Julian and Dreadlock Woman um <laughs> are way more in tune with like her value as a person right this person and this baby's value to the human project as a whole not just the political end game of a certain ideological structure which i think is very like crucial to think about yeah and i also think that that uh scene like obviously the the barn and this like hope for humanity was also uh like a in the manger type um illusion it was just like very complex i think yeah and i well yeah i was going to touch on the christian imagery of it which is i mean bleedingly obvious but um i also think um talking about kind of um the recycling of culture with nothing new being injected into it. Um, Not to detract from like the elderly who of course have like a valuable place in society and can contribute new ideas, but this metaphorical, you know, lack of cultural innovation. um, It feels like it's a statement on um, this kind of like necessity for nostalgia um, that can easily drive political movements, not just like, of the better time when there were children, um, but also of like cultural touchstones that meant something. So like recreating the birth of Venus in itself um, is a political act in that it's like, oh, we're, this is beautiful art, right? So this is what we're going to showcase this as, or like, you know, it's Mary in the manger, right? Even though it it deeply is not, right? It's key in a totally new context, right? Um, In a completely new struggle, right? Jesus wasn't, fought over by a revolutionary group in order to, you know, uh, 
displace Roman hegemony. Um, but I, yeah, I think it's really interesting in that um, uh, in a lot of uh, the film's most striking imagery, it's nothing new, right? Um, it's just like echoes of the past in new ways. Um, one of the things I really want to briefly touch on before you wrap up, um, because I saw it actualized, um, is uh, the school scene. Right, which I think is so... Uh, it's my favorite sequence in the film is because it's such a moment of quiet between two like extremely violent points. Um, and, you know, I, I have some friends who are living in Japan. I went to visit them, um, you know, some time ago. And we, we went to maybe, uh, you know, five or six different playgrounds at that time. And all of them looked like ghost towns. Like, they were rusted out. They were falling apart. They were, you know, completely in disarray um like even in the middle of tokyo like these were unused by anyone but businessmen looking to have a smoke um and like the way the film sort of captured that sort of loneliness like you being in a playground on a sunday afternoon in the busiest city in the world right and just seeing this playground in complete disuse and then the deer the fucking deer that shows up like there's a photographer in Japan, uh, Yoko Ishii, who does photography of the deer in Nara, Japan, which is famous for having lots of deer. Um, but uh, they photograph the deer in urban environments when there's no humans around. And their idea is to create, a, they call it a science fiction world where the deer have replaced humans. <laughs> so it's just deer hanging out in like empty, urban, <clears throat> well-maintained urban streets and stuff like that, right? And I think there's something so beautiful about that imagery and especially about this is like the only people who are infertile are the humans right like this idea you know the deer will inherit the earth at some point if the film's trajectory doesn't shift right and stuff like that um and yeah like like in the way that we interpret you know children and the role children play in spaces and stuff like that like i know uh, we've had this conversation before laura where um whenever someone gets mad at like a kid at a lefty event or like a town hall or something like that for like acting out or like running around, it makes me really angry. Yeah. <laughs> um, cause it's just Super like, angry. they're a fucking child. Just like, let them be a kid. Yeah. Right. They're not disrupting. They Even need if, to be here. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's like, it's your fault for not providing childcare. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, like even just envisioning a world where that isn't a problem that you face is so depressing to me. You know what I mean? Just a, a series of aging people in rooms trying to create some sort of like narrow, uh, you know, liberate, quote unquote, liberated uh, politic is so scary, <laughs> you know? It's uh, it's life without surprise, right? Which, uh, I mean, ultimately is a goal of fascism, right? Like creating certainty uh, over the future and, you know, the citizens who are unfortunate enough to live in a fascist state. Um, so, Yeah. Great film. Makes <laughs> any, a lot of good points. Any final thoughts on that before we talk about our final thoughts on the movie? Uh, one, actually, something it might be fun to do is if we do like a little bit before we go into final thoughts of like just pulling up a few really excellent quotes in the movie and just being like, that part's so good. Because I've got a like, list of them. Uh, I'm sure that there's other ones around the table here of just like, this movie's got some like fucking top tier lines like some of these lines are so good that if they were in another movie they'd be the best part of the movie but because <laughs> they're in this movie they won't get mentioned on the sh on the podcast you know like 
Like, um, for example, this interaction I just love so much where, like, he's when he's first captured by the fishes and he's like, I don't talk politics. And then she's like, you used to talk a lot of politics. And he's like, that's 20. That was 20 years ago. I'm a lot more successful now. <laughs> uh, just a <clears throat> killer line. Um, one of my favorite lines is uh, when Jasper starts talking about Praxis and a dreadlock woman uh, asks him what Praxis is. And he's just like, oh, it. it he was just the actualization of their dreams. So, like, I, it's such a nice moment that was actually very, uh, somehow, even a throwaway line of dialogue like that is so predictive of the world we live in where everything is now framed as praxis and theory. Yeah, something I really like about that sequence, too, is, is, um, uh, Michael Caine's character saying the same stuff to the other people that he already said to Theo earlier, which is something you always experience in real life is, you know, those people who are big personalities and they start doing their routine again for someone else and you have to like sort of sit through it. <laughs> uh, like I just, I loved how like, it was just very like, felt very real that yeah. he's in the foreground pouring his drink and in the background, Michael Caine's going through his whole routine again for his new audience. Um, it just felt like very personable and like, one of the like there's there's so many little aspects of realism throughout the movie where it's like again not just real but like more real than any movie i've ever seen just like the only modern movie that's my that's my position (laughs) that's your hot take for Uh, the episode (laughs) and the amount of like detail you can read into right it's it's uh, suggested very strongly that like key is a is a sex worker right there's like all these sorts like implications around various characters in the movie um, even you mentioned like creating art, um, you know, like, um, Jasper, like Michael Caine's character, his art has transformed from political cartoons to his beautiful weed that he creates, right? <laughs> like his hydroponics lab, like he's clearly invested himself as far into that. Um, I think... one, one line I really liked or like it just, we mentioned like the comedy in the movie and like, it really brought like that human element to a lot of the just that like even in these like horrible situations there's still just this like humans find ways to smile and have fun and like be a bit weird and like the stuff with the baby's name was just oh really, yeah like, bazooka Froley. <laughs> Froley. And I, I actually read a piece of trivia that like Froley just wasn't it's it's a completely made up name it has no history or anything it just <laughs> Uh, which I thought was interesting because it is so odd. And he's like, I was getting used to Froley. It's like Bazooka. It's a boy's name. It's a boy's name. Uh, I like as, I, yeah, I, I loved that stuff. Speaking of key, I really liked when um, when Theo asked who the father was, and she's like, "I'm a virgin," and he's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry," and she starts laughing because I really appreciated <laughs> yeah, yeah. that the movie like didn't just make her like this like silent hope like she was kind of body and fun and funny and like kind of was like sarcastic to him after she like gave birth to the baby and yeah i thought that was really nice as well there's a weird cop who speaks in the third person which uh like yeah sid you know what a fantastic way to just create a character out of a nothing character um you know where where he's like show sid the the sad face Sad face? Sid is yeah, pleased, right? Fuji face. Yeah. Fuji face. yeah, yeah, Fuji face, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there's one line um, I really like, which is uh, the last thing Julian says to Theo before he goes back to work or whatever, where she's like, you know, that, that ringing in your ears is the sound of your cells dying or whatever, and 
you know, once that's gone, you'll never hear that frequency ever again. It's like, it's such, like, as a line of dialogue, it's such an elegant way to articulate someone's mortality. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like when you smell, it's like that thing about when you smell something, it's, your receptors can only pick up a certain variety of scents, and once it's filled up, it's done, right? And it's like, the way she presents that, and just like, when you really think about that quote, like, how fucking sad it is, you know what I mean? Um and uh, we were talking about uh, this line earlier, Laura, when uh, Theo is having dinner in front of Guernica. Did you want to talk about that one? Which one? Oh, it's um, when uh, uh, he's asking, like, oh, why are you, like, assembling all these paintings if no one's going to see them? And then his friend says, I try not to think about oh, it. Oh, yeah, that's just, like, perfect, right? It's just this, like, perfect distillation oh, yeah. of what, you know, every oil executive probably says when they got their uh, when they got their report from, like, Exxon that burning fossil fuels was going to, like, um, cook the world. They were like, well, you know, let's just not think about it. Yeah, like, another great response is, I have to accumulate capital. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's that um scene where they're talking about religion they're like oh they're the guys who are on their knees for 30 days the renouncers no no you're thinking yes. about yeah <laughs> this is this is my next one this is my next one it's such it's such a good throwaway like just the throwaway line that has so much behind it the renouncers versus the repenters <laughs> self-flagellate like so, half the people self-flagellate and half the people just get on their knees and it's just like <laughs> Such a good criticism of the left. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I would really like to be sitting in on those meetings, and it's like, you people who are slow, self-flagellating are going to take this movement as soon as you can. <laughs> um, that bit that Julian has and Theo, where they're talking about, like, uh, you should have seen him years ago. He was a real activist. And he's like, I wasn't an activist. I just wanted to get laid, which honestly describes a lot of leftists I know. <laughs> Um, like, we'll be naming them now. Yeah. You can actually see it in the show notes. We'll be doxing them. <laughs> it's a list. Yeah. Um, but like, I I have a couple of like old lefties in my office who are talking about like, yeah, you know, I became a socialist, but really, I just started going to those meetings because that's where the like hottest women were and stuff like that. Which is like, all leftist yeah. women are babes. That's well known. Yeah, it's a very classic like um, like old timer leftist line. Like I'm sure, yeah, it's. And that's sort of it is like one of the beautiful things about this movie is just the lack of any wasted detail, right? Like everything serves a purpose. Everything serves a point from the direction to the set direction, to the dialogue, to the acting, to the every camera move. It's, it feels so loose, but there's not a single point in a frame where everything isn't constructed specifically to give you a certain effect. And like, very few filmmakers are able to do this. Like the Dardenne brothers are notorious for this, but they make social realist films, right? You can't really appreciate it because it's, you know, it's arguably just real life and they do it so well. But something like this is like, you're so aware of it, but it doesn't ever take you out of the movie. You can only just like stop and think about it after and like marvel at like, fuck, like how much they maximized every inch of space, every inch of money, every piece of budget, like, um, very quick throwaway. That car scene where they're it's one long take and they're in the car and Julian gets shot. They built the fucking car um with like cranes that pull out parts of the car. Like that was all live. There was no CGI except for the windshield. Wow. Um and so and the as, ping pong ball. Yeah. And the cameras as like <laughs> Yeah, the ping pong ball too, yeah. As the camera's moving around, like the car's being pulled out in in chunks, basically, and then coming back in just in time to like wow. turn the camera around. You're just like 
so he made someone put that together for him you know what i mean like which i think is amazing any other lines that you wanted to talk about uh yeah just one more um well, actually, one one last on on that scene. Um, it's, I, again, I can't speak highly enough of this this fucking film. But like, you know that Julian and Theo have this background, and the first time you see it, they're both people. They both they clearly love each other, and they're connected from this like deep history. They're doing this weird ping pong ball spitting back and forth thing, and you just like you really feel the humanity of it. Like for the first time, like these these characters have just been sort of like talking heads within this narrative so far and then they they give them a moment to just be humans that like have this history together and there's like this beauty to it and they they like they're they're so clearly like this like seed of like this rekindled romance that's just palpable and just like almost there and then and that's when she gets shot so it makes it so brutal like you could have killed her at the beginning of that scene and i would have not given half a shit like it's just like whatever oh yeah the people die in the background of this movie all the time but it's like they they just brought enough of the humanity out that you really really feel her death and you really really feel how how profound it is and how profound it would be uh to theo it's just brilliant filmmaking incomparable filmmaking uh i'll say it this movie is immaculate this movie is immaculate <laughs> <Hot take. laughs> perfect film um uh, one, la- one last sort of like quotey thing, or it's two things, is the ads that you see in the movie. Also perfect and immaculate. Yeah. The, the quietest ads, the suicide kit ads, and the slogan, you decide when. It's like <laughs> such a like good, realistic marketing for a suicide kit. Yeah. <laughs> Just that, also- like choi- that like cho- choice capitalism thing of like, this is all up to you. You can choose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> the free market to choose when to die is really the only choice you have left. <laughs> oh, no. so, are you tired of slow acting suicide pills? Here at Quietus, we took a different approach. Just, Don't consult your doctor. <laughs> there are no doctors left. Just take it. Uh, but the other ad that's repeated a few times, and it's also really. It's sort of just in a similar way to the quietest. It's really unsettling and disturbing if you give it a little bit of like room uh, in your mind to think about. Like I was pausing the movie a lot to like think about shit, and the the I, I paused for this ad, which is like all the different voices. Like he's my brother. That's my dentist. Blah blah blah. No, they're illegal aliens. Yeah. <laughs> like start, starting with the the like he's my brother. Like that's what you do in an ad about why illegal aliens are actually humans. Yeah. But like they they took it and made it like an inverted sort of thing where it feel at first it feels like like oh it's there's a sympathy for the sympathy for the the migrants and then it's like no they're illegal aliens yeah. report them to the police <laughs> <laughs> yeah just making the dehumanization super explicit and like yeah and we're getting there too in our like uh, landscape of political advertising right when we talk about the ways this film is prophetic like you know one of the things that the i think like reactionary right really latches onto is uh, the empathy arguments because they're so much easier to deconstruct from like a facts and logic standpoint. Um, and this is such an indication of that and like where these things are going, right? Like if you listen to like 20 minutes of a fucking Ben Shapiro podcast, he will address the he's my brother or they're my friend argument, right? And stuff like that and push it. You see an article at least once a month where it's like, 
yeah, we uh, we called ICE on our neighbors, um, or we voted for Trump. Uh, you know, uh, but we weren't expecting our neighbor to get deported, right? Or we weren't expecting like them to just take him and leave his kids here and and release them to CPS, <laughs> right? Um, and it's such a function of like how the media landscape has made that narrative um, palatable, right? Um, one second, the cat uh, turned on the air conditioner. I forgot <laughs> that this is a skill she has. <laughs> She's very talented. She's a very smart kitty. We always have cat problems on the pod. That's like one of our, <laughs> one of our defining marks. Uh, but yeah, any last thoughts? What did we all think of Children of Men? Um, I, I think it's a unanimous uh, two thumbs up. It's across. a masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I don't have to defend this movie. Ten, ten <laughs> you thumbs should, up. <laughs> you should watch it if you haven't seen it already. Uh, and it's one of the best films of the 21st century. Um, just rip through the entire filmography of all the three amigos. Like, there's a a trio of Mexican directors, you know, Alfonso Cuaron, Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu, and um, Guillermo del Toro. You know who the Western film critic <laughs> criticism landscape calls the three amigos. Um, we can talk about that later, <laughs> um, but all of them make um, extraordinary films that like, and I would argue they're all Marxist filmmakers, even if they're not explicit about it, that speak to our capacity for love, humanity, um, and just like, you know, creating a better world. And, and, you know, like Guillermo del Toro says, you have to, you know, love the monsters in order to like, you know, actually feel something, right? Like that's the thesis of all of his films. Um, is is finding love for in like the ugliest places? Um, uh, any final thoughts from you guys? I just love the way that Alfonso Cuarón handles the camera and handles like the energy of his scenes. Like the example that just came to mind for me was the car chase scene where the car won't start and it's like rolling down the hill and it's almost like you could imagine that scene in a comedy movie uh because it's so like kind of absurd and awkward the way they're like trying to get away but like he builds this like incredibly real tension into it and just like yeah it's it's something i'd see throughout all of his movies is that like um energy behind the camera or like the way it moves and what it focuses on it's like that can be distracting a lot of the times when directors try to use the camera in that way but like he does it really effectively for like great emotional resonance and it's in all of his work including the one good harry potter movie and uh <laughs> like this is his best film but like i highly recommend this and i highly recommend all of his movies uh, the thing that I want to bring up is just the last scene of the movie and the the being sort of adrift on this boat in this like fog of of like this for a long time, this sort of ambiguity of like whether or not it was all for nothing and like whether or not uh, the, 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 the ship is going to arrive, whether or not the human project exists and just like the boat and being sort of like stranded on this boat with nowhere to go back to, like leaving this war torn place. That just got bombed. It's like just, yeah, getting leaves and then it's like blown up. It just, it's, it's such a like potent sort of like uncertainty that comes in that scene. And it strikes me as being really related to sort of like uh, migration and the, the, the sort of like 
uh, you know, the, the way that people talk about immigrants is like being off the boat or something like that. Like uh, the boat and migration connection, I think, is is really present in that scene. And that like and also the sort of metaphor of like us being uh, us being in this together, like this sort of like we're we're on this uncertain uh, boat together as as humanity and like there's this sort of like question ahead of us of of like whether or not the human project is real like whether or not we can and obviously in the in the movie it turns out that there is a, the boat comes there is hope for the future um and then the the title children of men and the sound of children playing uh which is really weird to hear also after what, experiencing two hours without a child's voice um but like the, the, there's just something like so uh, something so powerful and moving about that last scene too and just like how we're all we're all um we we everyone comes from somewhere and everyone has a history of like movement and migration in their family and that we're all like in this uh this 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 little boat together that might sink but also the human project might be real that's um and tomorrow might be just uh on the other side of the horizon and that's uh very quickly in the hands of a worse director like this is one of the reasons i hate christopher nolan they would have left them in the boat and they would have put something like small and evocative like maybe the sound of a boat horn in the distance before they cut to black without any signs of children playing or something like that right like like they're the choice to not have ambiguity to say there is light at the end of the tunnel is a brave choice when it comes to film like this i could have ended on a note that was interpretive but it's like no there is a better future ahead of us it's right there like it's right beyond the as said laura like right beyond the horizon right um yeah i think that's a really good place to leave off with the film um thank you so so much for being on with us now we're gonna roll into our recomradations for the week um i'll start with mine just to set the tone uh uh, yeah, uh, my recommendation is another documentary, a very long one, um, called Ex Libris. Uh, I mentioned it on last week's episode. Uh, Frederick Wiseman made a three-hour and 20-minute documentary about the New York Public Library with no editorial comments whatsoever. Um, it is one of the most gripping documentaries I've ever seen. Um, it is just the machinery of a public library institution, the largest in the world at work, meetings, people using it, uh, events that are being held, speakers, like just every, no stone unturned in this library system, right? And without having to say anything about it, he justifies the existence of, of libraries and like the sort of beauty of all these like weird freaks, like people who work at a library and make their entire life about libraries are not normal people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like especially the ones with niche interests. Um, but just their love for the system and what it stands for and what it's doing is so present. And they're all like magnetic and just genuinely wonderful people. I want them all to be my best friend. Frederick Wiseman is an amazing filmmaker and everyone should watch Ex Libris. Like I don't split it into five viewings if you have to, but it's a gorgeous documentary and on canopy, which is a public library streaming service. You can stream it for free like Netflix, but through libraries. Hell yeah. Um, how about you guys? <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm reading a book right now. I, I haven't finished it yet, but I, I've uh, really, really been enjoying it. It's a, an accelerationist author named Sadie Plant. Um, it's called Zeros and Ones, Digital Women and the New Techno Culture. Um, it's just really uh, 
fascinating sort of like recently I've been reading uh, stuff like actually reading uh, even reading a bit of Mark Fisher recently through this uh, the accelerate um, the accelerate reader um, but uh, yeah I just I, I when I read the title zeros and ones digital women in new techno culture I was like that cle- that title is so clever I'm gonna like go on Amazon and find it and buy it it's got to be interesting uh, but it is it's like it's really really interesting um, sort of like uh, erratic jumping around the place talking about sort of like the invention of um like the, the 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 like the invention of computer code um and drawing sort of parallels between um like women and technology and like she she makes a sort of prov- provocative statement that throughout history uh men used women and men used technology and now finally women and technology are are fighting back um <laughs> i'm putting on my mech suit right now <laughs> uh i i don't know skip me i don't got anything <laughs> no worries how about you laura um so this episode's coming out in two weeks from when we're recording and it's going to be past the release date for lana del rey's new uh album uh norman fucking rockwell and um the tracks that she's been putting out the fan tracks i've been a fan of uh, lana del rey for a long time as a uh sad girl with uh long nails (laughs) it's kind of my wheelhouse um and uh yeah, I the the tracks that she's been putting out kind of are um a lot more uh personal and touching and she's clearly got a lot more creative control uh these days than she did at her the beginning of her career and uh her songwriting is really um amazing and and nuanced and she kind of plays with like the jokes with which uh, and jokes around with the things that she's been pigeonholed as as like a depressed girl and like a femme fatale and this kind of like kitschy sexuality that she usually displays um in her stuff uh, uh, so it's been really awesome to uh, experience those as they come out. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the album, which when you hear this, dear listener, will already be out. And your last recommendation for the week uh, is a movie that I was reminded a lot of when thinking about Children of Men. Uh, it's a movie with a lot of biblical allusions. Uh, it's about confronting uh, despair and hopelessness and trying to, you know, struggle to find a better future. It's the 2017 Matt Reeves film War for the Planet of the Apes. Um, So I also think that this movie is almost immaculate. Uh, It's a long film, um, but it's genuinely incredible. It's the end of the rebooted Planet of the Apes trilogy. Uh, Mark Kermode has this quote where he said you can learn everything about politics by watching the Planet of the Apes movies. He's not quite wrong on that. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's a gorgeous film. Uh, Visually, uh, it's really emotionally wrenching um, and uh, uh, has a powerful message behind it. So I would check it out if you haven't seen it. Guys, thank you again so, so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It was fantastic having you on. Thanks thanks for having us. Um, yeah, it was a great time and I thought your insight was fantastic. Where can people find you? Well, we're, we're at seriouslywrong.com. That's S-R-S-L-Y-W-R-O-N-G. Seriously without vowels because we made that choice in 2014. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. And you can also find us on Stitcher, Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, basically whatever podcatcher of your choice. Um, if you found us through Seriously Wrong uh, and we're not listed on your preferred podcast app, 
please send us a message or add us at Kino Lefter on Twitter, and we will make sure to get registered on your favorite podcatcher because we love you. Please uh, go to iTunes and leave us a good review. We've been having them uh, come in, and we really, really, really appreciate them, and we love to read uh, what you guys have to say. Um, So keep that rolling in. really does help people find the show, and again, we'll love you for it. And after you're done writing your very nice review, you want to go to patreon.com forward slash Kino Lefter. There, if you're donating at $3 a month, you can access Primo Lefter, our now weekly bonus show. Um, So last week we had American Factory, and this week uh, it's a conversation on Mark Fisher's Exiting the Vampire Castle, which I'm sure we will not catch any flack for, and all of our opinions are correct. So (laughs) you can go over there and check it out. Uh, thank you everyone so much uh, thank you wrong boys for being uh, amazing uh, we finally done it guys we finally have an episode that's as long as the movie we watched <laughs> hell yeah um, and but honestly it was so worth it like this is a film that deserves that amount of time and, and analysis but until next week love you see you soon we love you bye 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 Kino Lefter is part of a loose affiliation of left wing podcasts hosted by the bilingual journalism collective ricochet This network includes News You Can Use, Well Reds, Out of Left Field, Radio Free Winnipeg, 49th Parahel, and more. Support Canadian podcasting, support Canadian media, and support Ricochet at ricochet.media. Great podcast, check them out. (laughs) 